Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 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 Well, uh, this morning it's a new day here at Incarnation. I, I'm, uh, I'm tempted, if you could call it tempted, to preach out of the Gospel of John, John 14. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, and that would be a very worthy passage to preach from. But we just finished a two-year series out of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, for the first time in a while, we're just following the normal ACNA lectionary. And so I thought, you know, this is actually a really amazing passage we have here in Deuteronomy 6 this morning. We're going to be hearing a lot more sermons for the next few weeks on, Deut- uh, you know, on, on the law, on, on the Psalms, on the epistles and stuff like that. So I wanted to start us off by preaching out of Deuteronomy 6 this morning. If you please turn there to page 151. Deuteronomy is, of course, uh, the fifth book in the Bible. It's the final book in the Law of Moses. And it contains uh, Moses' final instructions to, to the Israelites. They're perched um, on, on this side of the Jordan, and they're about ready to go into the Promised Land. And this is the last instructions that Moses gives them before they do. You could kind of think of this as Moses' swan song. Um, and the name Deuteronomy means repetition of the law. Because in, in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses summarizes um, much of what God has already commanded and done and is continuing to do to rescue the Israelites. But it's not just repetition. Um, there's, a, there's a really unique perspective that comes through in Deuteronomy. Um, and it has a unique relationship to the rest of the law. It's, it's, it, it kind of reminds me of the way in which the Gospel of John is unique among the Gospels. Um, that's kind of how Deuteronomy is. Uh, <clears throat> in addition, it might interest you to know that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Old Testament. More than any other book in the Old Testament, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. In fact, some of his most famous quotes come from Deuteronomy. Right, so when he's being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he says what? He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's from Deuteronomy. And when he rebukes the devil for, for saying, hey, just worship me and, and you know, I'll, give you, I'll give you the whole world. Jesus rebukes the devil. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus is again quoting from Deuteronomy. When Jesus is asked to summarize the law, to give the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as as yourself. And that is again from Deuteronomy. In fact, in all the New Testament, only Isaiah and the Psalms are quoted more than the book of Deuteronomy. So if we want to imitate the Lord Jesus and the apostles, and that should be important to us, right? Well, if we want to imitate them, then we should become familiar with the book of Deuteronomy. Because that's what they were meditating upon. That's, that was on Jesus' Kindle beside his bed growing up. <laughs> and, and it's actually a really good read. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in these last chapters of the Law of Moses. Of course, it feels a bit foreign and, and, uh, and archaic at parts, and it can be tricky to interpret. But it's well worth engaging. And this morning, we're going to be engaging one of the most important sections in Deuteronomy, indeed, in all of Scripture. 
It's the part that Jesus refers to as the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 4 through 5, chapter 6, 4 through 5 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Verse 4 in Deuteronomy 6 is commonly called the Shema because Shema is the transliteration of the first Hebrew word here for hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. And, uh, and, and really from ancient times down to today, the Shema has been repeated by all observant Jews twice a day, in the morning and in the evening during, uh, during prayers. It's, it's, it forms a sort of mini-creed for monotheism. And it's often the last words that a Jew will speak on their deathbed. They'll say the Shema. And so therefore, it's not surprising when Jesus is asked several times in the Gospels, for example, Mark 12, 28, which commandment is the most important of all? He's asked that directly. Which commandment is the most important of all? Uh, and he responds by quoting these two verses in full. He actually quotes verse 4 and verse 5. He says, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So here Jesus combines the Shema with this command to love the Lord our God in verses 4 and 5. So he, he treats them as a unit. Um, because as one scholar puts it, Love is not simply one act among others, but the foundation for all others. Hence, verse 5 belongs with verse 4. Elsewhere, Jesus refers to these words as the summary of the law. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these words. Because not only does this section occur immediately following the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, and so in that way it's sort of acting as this compact summary of what we just heard, but also, um, the love of God is the fount of all other loves. It's the fount of, of all other holiness. It's the fount of all the commandments. And um, in, in, the, in the Hebrew, both the words hear and the words love are, are in the imperative form. They're actually commands. Listen up, Israel. You've got to love the Lord. Right? It's, it's strange in our cultural context to think about love as being a commandment, isn't it? It's kind of weird because <clears throat> it's not something that we tend to think about as like a fundamental choice or commitment that we can make. Um, in our modern world, we tend to view love primarily as an emotion that changes with the wind or with our own personal sense of self-fulfillment, which is part of the reason why marriage is in such a fragile state even among Christians today. Recently, a guy in an unhappy marriage asked me whether he was expected to remain in that marriage even after his kids have graduated and were out of the house. <coughs> but what were his vows? I told him, brother, you were called to love your wife for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. In Scripture, love is viewed as an act of the will. And not just as an act of the will, of the emotions of the total self, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. So first we're commanded to love God with all our heart, 
our creator doesn't just like want our rote words, right? Or our empty rituals, or our going through the motions. He doesn't want our religious facades or our forced obedience. He wants our hearts. God pours his love out to humanity and he desires our love in return. The great Anglican poet and priest George Herbert writes, My God, what is a heart that thou shouldst it so I and woo, pouring upon it all thy art as if thou hadst nothing else to do? Throughout the scriptures, God is portrayed as a bridegroom longing for the affections of his bride. The Lord is jealous for the hearts of his people. John Donne writes, Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you. Amen. Lord, make that our prayer. But in Hebrew, the word heart, levav, is, is not only the place of emotions, but it's also the seat of thought. Um, so unlike Jews, the Greeks separated the heart and mind into sort of separate categories. Um, and so in the Gospels, when this is qu- quoted, it's contextualized, which is why Jesus adds, and with all your mind. He's not actually bringing something new. It would have been new to the Greeks. They don't think about heart in that way. But the Jews did think about it that way. And so it was appropriate that Jesus should add, and with all your mind, the heart is also the seat of our thoughts. And we're commanded also to love God with all our souls, nefesh. One Old Testament scholar translates souls as being, because they say it involves worshiping God with all that you are, with all your being. And finally, we're to love God with all our strength. This means all the resources that you have at your disposal. For some, this will be more than others, but all of us have an offering to bring to God, right? Um, Some rabbis have actually historically interpreted this as um, referring to money, but it's it's much more broad than that. Uh, For example, when Israel went astray and turned to other gods, the prophets preached the truth to their nation, even when it meant that they would be despised for telling the truth, right? And that was an offering of their strength. It was an offering of the gift that they had. When Queen Esther approached the pagan king on behalf of her people, risking life and limb for such a time as this, that was an offering of the strength that she had. And when a king like Josiah finally found the book of the law and decided he wanted to obey it, he was capable of much more, right? He could order the temple to be repaired. He could tear down the altars to the false god. He could tell the people, it's time to renew our covenant to Yahweh. He reinstituted the Passover meal, which hadn't been celebrated for hundreds of years. And after this, 2 Kings 23-25 says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all, that the, law of, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any arise after him. So Josiah was worshiping the Lord with all his strength. Jesus says, to whom much is given, much will be required. That's because God wants us to love him, not just in sort of a generic way where everybody just gives God the same amount, you know, same piece of pie. But he wants us to offer whatever strength is in us. 
The Shema and the command to love God with our total selves is at the very center of the law. Everything else flows from this. <clears throat> and now that we have that centerpiece in place, the call to love God, I want to briefly tease out three more truths about the law that we find in this passage. All three are foundational truths, and all three tend to be things that Christians get confused about. So first uh, is simply that the law is good. Um, even though it doesn't save us, it's still good. It's still an expression of God's heart. Second, that obedience comes actually after salvation. The expectation of obedience comes after salvation. And third, that instruction in God's commands um, starts in the home. We see that here in Deuteronomy 6. It starts in the home. So first, so first in Deuteronomy 6, we learn that the law is good. It flows out of the nature of our good creator. It's not just arbitrary, it's coming from who God is. And while it can't save us, it was given for the good of God's people, for our flourishing. <clears throat> Look with me at Deuteronomy 6.3, where this intention is clear. Moses says this about the commandments. He says, Hear therefore, Israel, and he said, Don't just be here is the word. Be careful to do them. Why? That it may go well with you, he says, and that you may multiply greatly as the, uh, as the Lord, the God of your, fa your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So our Creator's purpose in giving the law was to bless His people. Again, look with me at verse 24. It says, And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. The point is that our creator knows us. If you've heard me say it before, he knows us better than, he knows, than, than we know ourselves. And his commandments are not arbitrary. They're tailored to how he formed us. How he made us to thrive. As Tim Keller says, God never gives us busy work. His commands are to prosper us, not to harm us. Jesus said, for example, that the, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, this law was given for the benefit of humanity. Humanity wasn't given for the benefit of serving the law. God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired and needed a rest. He rested on the seventh day and he gave the fourth commandment because he knew that we would need a rest. Furthermore, he knew that Sabbath teaching, keeping would teach the Israelites to trust in God for their provision rather than trusting in their own work and busyness and bustling always. Jesus' affirmation of the goodness of the law throughout the Gospels is very informative for Christians today. Jesus called the Old Testament the Word of God. These are the words that flow from the mouth of God, Jesus said. It was his custom to regularly attend synagogue, and to hear the word read and taught. And of course, the law of Moses feels a bit old and foreign to us. It can be tricky to untangle the parts that have been fulfilled in Christ um, from the parts that are, that are still binding on the church today. Uh, but it's not as tricky as, as, as some of the comments by amateurs on the internet um, forums would have you think. <laughs> okay, uh, At the risk of being a bit overly simplistic, here's a general rule. Um, in the New Testament, the ritual aspects of Deuteronomy, about sacrifices and ritual cleanliness and circumcision, um, are viewed as being fulfilled in Christ. 
Um, whereas the moral teaching, the Ten Commandments, the call to care for the poor and the foreigner, the sexual ethics of the law, are viewed as continuing to be binding and authoritative for the church today. That's perhaps a little bit overly simplistic, but that'll, that'll get you most of the ways. In fact, in the, Old, uh, the Old Testament law continues to be um, useful in many ways for Christians today. The uh, Protestant reformers uh, would talk about the three uses of the law. And they said uh, the first use of the law is um, because it's holy and it's a reflection of the holy nature of God, um, it makes us realize that our hands are dirty and that we, we have no hope unless we put our hope in the salvation that's offered to Jesus. So it sort of drives us to the gospel. Um, uh, the second purpose of the law was uh, sort of a civic person, uh, a purpose. It, it, it helped with civic order. The law can't change hearts, only the spirit can do that. But when the law is in place, when the sword's in place, when there's police, police officers in place, it can be a deterrent to evil. It can help to protect um, those, uh, it's, it's intended to help to protect um, the innocent from the unjust. In this sense, Paul calls the law a guardian. He says it's a guardian. So that's the second use of the law. A third use, though, is that for those who have been born anew by the Holy Spirit, it actually continues to serve as a guide to, to live out the will of God, to please God, to love and serve Him with our lives, to um, to flourish, to, to live into the way that our Creator called us to live. So those are the three uses of the law. That's why even though the gospel is a gospel of grace, when Jesus gives the Great Commission and, and says to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, what does He say? And teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Right? His assumption was that you know, these people who are putting their faith in Him, these people who are becoming disciples... They're going to be interested in what he has to say, everything that he's commanded, right? So the law, it's not the way to salvation, but it's still good. First, we're saved by faith in Christ, and only then are we enabled by the Spirit to obey God's word, God's commands. And that's the second point. And, and, and this order, I, I mentioned when I was preaching on Philippians 3 a few weeks back. This order makes all the difference, doesn't it? I mean, you think about uh, that, that salvation comes first, followed by grateful obedience. We don't love God so that He loves us, right? We love God because He first loved us. Right? Uh, we, we talked about the other week um, about wh wh what's the difference in a household for, for a child who thinks... If I don't perform in the right way, my parents aren't going to love me. If I don't win first place, my parents aren't going to love me. If, if, if I'm not obedient, my parents aren't going to love me, right? What's their experience like? How does that form them on the inside? But what's the experience of a child like who knows their parents' love is already extended to them at all times? Right? It's unconditional. It doesn't mean that there aren't rules, Right? It doesn't mean there isn't a way that for them to treat their sister or treat their brother or whatever that's going to be pleasing to their parent, but they're not trying to earn that. It's, it's a given. Notice um, that this is not just the pattern in the New Testament. This is actually the way that it worked for the Israelites. We commonly think that it was, that it was different, but, but look with me. Um, before giving the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, 
the Lord, what does he do first? He reminds them of the salvation that he's won by his power. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says immediately after, you shall have no other gods but me. Right? He reminds them of, his, of their salvation that was wrought by his might. Not because they did something good. Right? He just decided he wanted to rescue them. He saved them before giving them any commandments. John Frame writes, In the Ten Commandments, obedience follows redemption. The law is not something they must keep in order to merit redemption. God has redeemed them. Keeping the law is the way they thank God for salvation freely given. This pattern continues here in chapter 6. Look with me at verses 20 through 25. It says, When your son asks you in time, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord God has commanded you? And Moses basically says, Tell them about the mighty salvation of God. And afterwards, that he gave us commands for our good always. Right? Moses spends several verses summarizing the mighty salvation of God. And now that we come to it, notice that Moses expects the fathers to be able to give to be able to give a good answer to the spiritual questions of their children. Right? That, that, that's actually an expectation. Fathers had a crucial role in the Israelite home as the spiritual head of the family in bringing up children in the knowledge and love of God. And of course, this, this, this expectation was extended to mothers as well, who were part of the royal priesthood that's mentioned um, in our first Peter reading today, it's a quotation from Exodus. They were part of that as well, whether the father was active or not. In fact, um, well, there's a real cool passage where Paul says um, to Timothy, um, I, you know, I know why you're a Christian, because that deposit of faith first existed in your grandmother and your mother, and they passed it on to you. It's living in you now. So he was converted, he was brought up in the faith by his mother and by his grandmother. And especially on Mother's Day today, I think it's fair for men to admit that mothers and grandmothers have often bared more than their fair share of the spiritual responsibility in the church of Christ. Amen? Amen. I mean, praise God for moms who love Jesus. This world would not be the same without them. I'm convinced theirs will be the greater crown in the age to come. And this brings us to our third and final point. That the law affirms the crucial role of parents in the spiritual upbringing of their children. In the scriptures, the primary responsibility for raising children in the faith is, not, is, excuse me, is placed upon parents, not the local church. The church has a secondary role. It's, it's important. It's not like the church doesn't care. But the primary responsibility for raising kids in the faith in the Old Testament and in the New is upon the parents. Listen again to the vibrant picture of instruction that God envisions for every Israelite home. Look down with me at verse 6. It says, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. So first of all, the parents, it, it had to be real to them, Right? And Moses says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Parents, do you talk to your children about Jesus? 
around the dinner table or before bed at night or when you're in the car. This is critical. This is God's vision. Moses says, You shall bind the commandments as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates and on your bathroom mirrors, I'd say. <laughs> I mean, wow, I want to be a part of that kind of home, don't you? Part of the reason why this sort of thing doesn't exist is because we, we, we've sort of delegated responsibility to the church, to the Christian school, to say, you have the primary responsibility for raising children in the knowledge and love of God. We've got it backwards, and so parents in Christ are unempowered. You know, for Jews, the Sabbath meals, which started the Sabbath, occurred on Friday night, They still, still to this day, and the parents um, lead their family in liturgy, and they lead them in prayer, and, and they have a time of thanksgiving around the table, and there's an expectation that the parents will know how to do this. All this is rooted in the law of Moses, where even a crucial celebration like the Passover starts in the home. That's where the Passover is celebrated. It's not celebrated by the professional priests in the tabernacle. It starts in the home, the Passover meal. I think in in the Anglican church, um, we're blessed with a lot more resources than usual for parents to be able to do this sort of thing in their homes. So we can use an Advent wreath in Christmas and, and remember the great heroes of the Bible leading up to the birth of Jesus with our kids. We can form little you know, Christmas traditions that center around Christ rather than materialism. We can invite our children to observe some sort of fast during Lent. They can get into this, trust me. Um, they, can, they, can, they can set aside allowance money to give alms to the poor. We can, we can party on feast days and on Easter and eat great food and, and, and celebrate and have extra freedoms and stay up a bit late. A bit late. <laughs> One time Carissa and I had a friend over for dinner who's um, a very outspoken atheist. And... Uh, um, I remember we were about to start dinner and one of my daughters uh, said the prayer. And when she was done, um, he looked up at me with this sort of sarcastic grin and he goes, getting him started early, huh? <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, why, why would I not teach my children about what I think is real and true? I said, you have to understand, to us, this is, is real, it's more real than gravity. So why would we not teach it to our children as the truth that they're going to be raised in? That they have a creator who loves them and that we ought to give thank, thanks for the good things that he gives us. You know, the most important thing that you can possibly teach your children is to love the Lord. Often it's, it's caught more than taught. You know what I mean? But even then, it's not automatic. Children have in, you know, they have a will. And they'll often use that will to resist their parents who love them and to even resist their God who loves them even more than their parents. You know, the prophet Samuel was one of the most impressive heroes in the entire Old Testament. And read all the heroes. I mean, there's, there's almost nobody like Samuel. Um, yet, 
In 1 Samuel 8.3, it says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Right? David was a man after God's own heart, but his own son Absalom tried to murder him. Furthermore, I know many godly parents whose children have chosen not to follow the Lord. You know, they, they have that choice. And their parents continue to pray for them and love them, but it's a very hard thing to bear. The point of Deuteronomy 6 is not that godly parents will always have God-fearing children. The point is that it's the parents' responsibility to do all that is in their power to instruct their children in the ways of the Lord. It's worth our best effort isn't that the sense we get from these, this bundle of verses? I think this is a tough word to hear as parents. Um, but we need to toughen up. Because this is the word of God. If it feels like too much of a burden, then ask Jesus to help you. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Ask a mature Christian friend who seems to have good spiritual rapport with their kids... Hey, what, do you, what, do you, what kinds of stuff do you do? Help me out here. But by all means, don't shirk God's call on your life to diligently teach your children the things of God. So in summary, we've talked about the call to love God with all our being. Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. Jesus says this sums up the law. And then we mentioned three truths about the law. That even for a Christian... We affirm that the law is a good thing. It's good. We notice a pattern that salvation precedes grateful obedience. But that's the way of the pattern. That's the pattern of the Old Testament and the New. And third, that instruction in God's commands begins in the home. And I close with a quote from one Bible scholar who says, The command to love God is a totalizing act that involves remembering, repeating, speaking, binding, and writing the word of God, father to son, bridging the generations. In Jesus' name, amen.